today I have with me Charles Eisenstein, who I'm really excited to have on. And uh, he's the author of Accent of Humanity, um, Sacred Economics, uh, The More Beautiful World That, uh, what was it? The More Beautiful World We Can... Uh, the More Beautiful in. World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's a you great title. You don't have title. to list them all. You don't have to list all my books. That's... <laughs> well, I'm just going to list those three. Oh, and then the fourth one is climate, because that's the most yeah. relevant today. Cool. And we met uh, many years ago. I don't know how long ago, 13 years ago or something? Yeah, it was a while. Yeah. Yeah, doing gift economy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah. And so your book, actually, your climate book, um, uh, got me interested in, the, or part, was one of the reasons it got more interested in the water thing, because you were saying that it's not just the carbon equation, the water equation is also really important and maybe even more important. So uh, maybe we yeah. just start there. Like, how did you get into this climate thing and how did you uh, come to understand the importance of water to the whole climate well, picture? You know what? I mean, I know it's just a figure of speech, but but the climate equation, the, the carbon equation, the water equation, part of the uh, problem <clears throat> is that water does not actually fit into an equation very well. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can, you can easily incorporate carbon, atmospheric carbon dioxide into equations in in a, a climate model, and you can calculate the, you know, watts per square meter differential um, according to different levels of atmospheric carbon. Like, and and it's globally distributed pretty evenly. It's pretty easy to calculate. Not so with water. The effects of water are highly nonlinear. Mm. and it's not evenly distributed and it can sometimes warm and sometimes cool and and its flows are unpredictable they're chaotic um so you know it's just it just doesn't fit in very well with the kind of science and the kind of thinking that people are comfortable with you have to really be in a systems a systems thinking um, perspective to to grapple with the effect of water. So, like that's that's. So, I guess to answer your question, though, um, I <clears throat> I mean, I've always been an environmentalist. Uh, you know, like like pretty much literally always, like going back to childhood. I read um, Rachel Carson. You know, when I was ten. Um, Wendell Berry when I was 15, you know, I was, um, and my father was an environmentalist. So I've been, it's kind of in my, in my DNA, you know, and, um, but my latest iteration of it came when I went to COP, whatever the number was in Paris, there was a big climate conference in Paris. Not that I was invited to the actual conference, but I was in one of the peripheral events that in itself, like had 800 people. I mean, it was, I mean, the whole thing was, was quite an extravaganza. And when I listened to speaker after speaker, I was like, oh no, this is, this is the mentality that is at the origin of the ecological crisis in the first place. So I knew I had to write about it and Mm -hmm. to do what I could to change the narrative. Uh, and that's what I've been. I mean, I kind of got derailed by COVID, you know, um, and was writing about other things for a while. But this is one of my main areas of interest. Mm. And and so, yeah, I, w- I was. So I began researching it to kind of confirm my hunch 
that there's a big piece missing from the dominant narrative. Mm. And as the more research I did, the more I became uh, confirmed in my belief that um, water and biodiversity are, and biodiversity in a large sense, like like including um, thriving, living forests and wetlands and soil and everything like that, like those those are what we need to be looking at, and those are the keys toward a healthy environment. Mm. Yeah. So, so, what would you say uh, at COP? How how it? What would be a simple way to describe the shift from what paradigm they're describing to to the paradigm that we need to to kind of begin to see the world? So, on one level, it's a shift from carbon reductionism that that locates the cause of pretty much everything about the ecological crisis as rising greenhouse gases it 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 blames everything on that and the corollary then being if we could reduce greenhouse gases then the environment would be fine and yeah they give lip service to other planetary boundaries and so forth but this is where most of the money most of the activism most of the policy making attention is going toward so that's and so the shift from that to i call it the living earth paradigm mm. that says it's and it's in contrast to the geomechanical view where you change the you know composition of atmospheric gases and it gives predictable improvements to the planet i mean the living earth perspective says earth is a living organism and its health depends on the health of all of its organs all of its tissues all of its cells and if we continue to destroy the organs which are things like wetlands forests soil uh, marine environments uh, whales elephants dolphins uh, frogs insects especially insects like we continue to destroy these organs which we are doing through many, many ways, not just one thing, but many, then Earth will be unable to maintain a stable physiology. And we'll, you know, we could reduce carbon emissions to zero, but if we keep harming, destroying the organs, Earth will still die a death of a million cuts. Mm. And and what we will see in the near term uh midterm and even near term it may not be intensifying warming we may not see global warming but what we will definitely see is derangement intensifying flood drought cycles intensifying weather extremes the wrong weather at the wrong place at the wrong time just like you know uh global weirding as it's called mm. just like your body would experience if you had only a tenth of your liver functioning and a tenth of your thyroid functioning and a tenth of your kidneys functioning. That's pretty much what it is. Like we're down to about a tenth right now. Mm. A tenth of the, you know, coastal wetlands, a tenth of the whales, a tenth of the insects, et cetera, et cetera. Like poetically speaking, we're down to a tenth. And <clears throat> and we're seeing this derangement really taking like really starting to happen right now. Mm. And and so I feel a lot of urgency about it. And the urgency is not, let's install as many solar panels and electric cars as quickly as possible. 
the urgency is right now absolutely a complete moratorium on any further destruction of rainforests, especially, but all forests and all wetlands and all all of anything that's somewhat still a pristine ecosystem. These are the remaining vital organs. We have to absolutely protect them. You can't just cut them down and offset the carbon by installing a carbon sucking machine somewhere else and, and cool the earth by spraying aluminum particles in the sky. No, that isn't going to help. It's going to make it worse. Mm. So I'm, I'm really impassioned about this. And, and so, you know, so first absolute first priority is to protect what remains and very close second, I don't even want to rank them, is to regenerate and restore what has been lost. And a third top priority is to stop freaking dousing the planet in toxic chemicals. Because mm. that's yeah. like degrading the, the Earth's body on the tissue and cellular level. Right. So, yeah, there it is. Cool. Um, and what would you say the role of water is in this living Earth paradigm? Or you know, as they, as they say, it's down, standing rock. Water is life. So water does similar things in the Earth's body as it does in a human body. And it is, I mean, so like on a scientific level, um, water not only cools or in some circumstances warms, but also um, helps modulate and uh, modulate the uh, the temperature. And I mean, water is essential to life, you know? So there's a tight feedback loop between the hydrological cycle and living systems. Mm. It's not like the old paradigm where, you know, it's just physical forces. It rains, you know, it evaporates, it makes clouds, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and, and the the distribution of moisture is the product of geomechanical forces based on the spin of the earth and so forth. Like that leaves life out of the equation. And as you very well know, I mean, because, I mean, I know that you know this, we've talked to, we've, you know, been in forums about this and I'm not sure how many of your listeners know, but I probably, if they've been listening to you, a lot of them know, um, life anchors the flow of moisture on earth through various hydrological pumps. The biotic pump is the word I use for it, where, where forests and grasslands and wetlands not only um, extend the rainy season and grow where, where the conditions are favorable, but they actually create favorable conditions by bringing water in thousands of miles from the oceans through, in Brazil, they call it the flying river. And so you you destroy the grasslands, you destroy the ability of soil to retain moisture, you cut down the forests, and the rains stop, and you get massive floods and prolonged droughts, which then gets all blamed on carbon. But, and and I do think that, like in like carbon dioxide, like greenhouse gases, intensify the problem. They add like an extra layer of instability and increase the thermodynamic flux through a system that's already unstable. So I'm not saying that it's like not a factor, but it's not the most important factor. We have, we have to uh, focus on the organs. Right, yeah, so the forests are a key part of this whole water cycle and we chop them down and that throws off a lot of the water cycle and 
leads to some of these floods and droughts. Um, you mentioned wetlands as an important organ. Uh, what would you say that role of the wetlands is in the whole earth system? Well, one thing they do is they slow down the water, mm. um, both if it's like, you know, a storm surge, you know, places that have thriving mangroves and other coastal wetlands are buffered from hurricanes and they suffer way, way less damage. So that's one thing they do. But also when when it rains, you know, inland or on the in the mountains and stuff, the wetlands absorb the water. So they stop flooding in that way also. And the water has a chance to seep into the aquifers. And, you know, it's just um it it's you could call it slow water. It slows down the water. When and when you destroy the wetlands, as has happened in North America through the extermination of beavers, instead of getting like all these marshes and bogs and swamps and and um, beaver ponds, you get uh, channel channelization. You know, you get these these waterways, these streams and brooks that just wear their courses deeper and deeper. And they carry the water directly into the river and directly into the ocean. Mm. But these did not exist. If you look at like survey maps from the 18th century in the Northeast, like you didn't have so many streams. What you had was, was necklaces of beaver ponds, sometimes 10 to 20 per mile. Mm. So it was a completely different landscape. Mm. And and these are you know hotbeds of biodiversity too. Yeah, that's a good picture. Like it's not necessarily just streams; it's actually like the sequence of ponds and wetlands and marshes that are kind of flowing in. And um, uh, I, I don't know if you heard natural sequence farming. This is an Australian bred, similar to permaculture, and they really focus on creating this sequence of uh, kind of wetlands. Um, yeah, so the yeah. wetlands play these roles of slowing and also like slowing the water and also guiding the water into the aquifers, um, like you're saying. And uh, I, I, yeah, uh, and it goes it goes into that uh, whole phrase: slow it, sink it, spread it, right? And so they're mm -hmm. kind of part of that that Brock Dolman um, invented, and he's actually tried to create this slow water movement, as has uh, Erica Geese. So they're yeah. both who wrote, who wrote the recent book "Water Always Wins." So they're both proposing this slow water movement. So hopefully, yeah. we can get a kind of slow water movement going. Yeah, Brock actually was one of the one of the people who influenced me um, on this topic. I visited. Uh, What's it? OECD. His I can't remember the exact name of his project out in California, but uh, I mean the guy is a genius. You know, like just like what he perceives in a landscape, uh, he can just read the history of it. It's incredible. And but he was doing, uh, you know, very like they weren't um, gross engineering projects, but he would make like these subtle tweaks to the landscape to increase the retention of water and to slow the water down. And, and yeah, like Brock is someone who definitely gets what we're talking about here. Yeah. yeah it's interesting. Just the tweaks to the earth. Cause I've heard you talk about that looking for the acupoints, right. Where we want to change the whole, you know, the, the earth systems and our social systems, but uh, yeah, this is kind of an interesting Acupoint. It's like you just do a little switch of the earth and like create a swale, like a little ditch, and mm -hmm. that changes a lot. And um, I, I know your son, uh, uh, who I ran into too recently. Uh, um, he he made this animation video about climate change, right? And, it, and and it seems like oh, you just make a little 
ditch or the swale and actually that affects the whole water cycle which is quite a quite extraordinary yeah i mean you don't have to always do much uh nick Rotendo is doing this kind of work in many places actually but i saw it at uh the mushroom farm it's called in california where like there was a big fire and everything around them got burned except for where he was doing this this restoration project where he's using not only like swales, you know, and 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 water features, but also uh, various kinds of grasses. Some of them like restoring native grasses, but also like not dogmatically, you know. Sometimes he'll use um, exogenous species as well, and you know, it's it's really a matter of of um, it comes from a different perception of Earth that's related to the living earth paradigm, where the first thing you do, it's not that you, you don't go in there with your heavy machinery and willy nilly build uh, water retention features, you or, or willy nilly plant trees where you think they should go. Like you spend some time there communing with the land, walking it barefoot, observing what's there already. And then, learning through that what wants to be born here what does the land want and becoming an agent or a participant in the healing of the land rather than imposing or fixing so it's a, it's a much more humble attitude in relationship mm. to the rest of life and in relationship to the intelligence that life as a collective generates and draws from it's like it's so it's it's a feeling of of companionship we're not alone here mm. because to 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 even listen for like even to ask that question what wants to happen here what does the land want what wants to be born you have to already assume a wanting outside of yourself and that already goes against science as we have known it Although pretty much every indigenous culture that's ever been on earth would have no problem with that idea. So, so you know, this takes us down to, you might call it like a, a spiritual level mm. um, or the level of myth and story. Who are we? What is the world? You know, how, how what is right relationship? It comes down to that ultimately. And that was another, you know, when I was at that cop, that was another another thing that really bothered me. You know, it was all about like this underlying assumption of we are alone here. So why should we change our ways? Well, if we don't, bad things will happen to us. But that's not where my environmentalism comes from. I didn't become an environmentalist because I was afraid of the bad things that would happen to me if I didn't. You know, when I when I when I learned about the passenger pigeons, I was sad because they were gone. When I learned about the decimation of the whales, I mean, they were almost exterminated in the 1970s, you know, when I was a kid. Like, that hurt. That was grievous. And I had no clue that the whales were essential for anything except for themselves. But we naturally love life. We love other beings. We don't want to be alone here. And so I think that on the level of story and rhetoric 
the environmental movement has really lost its way mm. by appealing to fear all the time and appealing to self-interest all the time. We have to go back to the origin of the movement, which is love. And when we do that, we will end up doing the things that preserve and protect and restore these beings that we love, these forests that we love, the, the rich soil that's not just an inert medium for growth that we put chemical inputs into, you know, but that's a living being in itself. And, and we love the smell of it and we love seeing the earthworms in it. And, and we're, we marvel at the, the, the microbiome in the soil and the interdependencies. Yeah, you know, so a shift, yeah. yeah, a shift to where it's multi-perspective. It's not just about humans. It's about we're doing it for other creatures and other living beings on Earth too. So because we love them. Yeah. So the whole thing is about falling into love with Earth. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and how do we bring love into this whole climate movement? Well. <clears throat> I mean, I wish I had a short answer to that. One thing I do is I simply remind, if I'm speaking to you know other environmentalists, I, I ask the question, what made you into an environmentalist? And if you want to make other people into environmentalists, are you giving them the kind of experience that made you into an environmentalist? Or are you appealing to something else? Are you wielding threat and bribery are you trying to bribe them through their you know or guilt them into it like what made you into an environmentalist how do you fall in love and i would say that it's through experiences of beauty and loss beauty mm. and grief and and when we bring people into that experience like the person who goes into the rainforest for the first time or I mean, a lot of people are never in nature, a lot of people from inner cities and stuff. Like you bring them into that, into that beauty, and that might make them into a lifelong environmentalist. Even if they know no science and you haven't, you know, frightened them about tipping points, they start to care. Mm. And yeah, so I think that whatever else we're doing on a policy level, you know, like what's gonna make the policymakers change. They have to resist powerful forces to make any positive change in policy. Where does that courage come from? It comes from commitment. Courage comes from love. I mean, even the word courage speaks to that. Courage, a, a capacity of the heart. Mm. You know, we have, we have to, uh, we can't just play in the playing field of computable cause and effect fighting our model against someone else's model. Because if we agree to play in that playing field, we've already seeded the game. Mm. We've already lost. Right. Because by saying it's in humanity's interest to do this, to, you know, go green or whatever, we're also saying if it isn't in humanity's interest, then we shouldn't do it. Like what if what if we could survive on a dead planet where technology replaces all of the ecosystem services? What if we could do that? 
Should we? Or is there some other reason besides our survival why we should serve the thriving of life? Mm. And I think that there is, because being alive is not just about, about surviving. It's about being in relationship. And the more that we destroy these other beings with whom we could have relationships, the more we cut ourselves off, the less alive we feel, the less whole we feel, and the sicker we become. We don't want to be alone. We don't want to just survive. We want to live in a beautiful world, an enchanting world. Yeah. And and water itself is is I mean it's it's kind of like I, I think there's something about water and love and life itself. And that's why in that whole standing rock movement, like it seemed like that that saying birthed, right? Water is life. Like a very powerful saying. Um and it's and it also seems it's an interconnection between us because the water actually comes into our bodies and then it's that same water that goes into the plants and and where i mean just materially we're made of that same water mm -hmm. that's kind of and and so the, it seems like there might be i mean there's something deeper there too that, that it's that water that's flowing through everyone that's that kind of like is it gets us out of that separation yeah and and water is as you know also it's not just a generic fluid where any two samples of water are the same water carries information right carries structure and it is um the not the but a medium of communication and interlinkage among all of the systems on earth so the water from that that falls as rain and and goes through plants and is soaked into the earth and comes up as a spring, like that carries information. And when it ends up in the ocean eventually, it links the planet with itself informationally into a, um, a collective organism. Into It's one of the ways that earth as a system is maintained. So there are levels of this that are pretty much beyond conventional science. But even if you limit yourself to conventional science and, you know, the effects of transpiration and, and clouds, you know, and the necessity of, of ice nucleating bacteria to maintain healthy rainfall, which the bacteria come from healthy forests, you know, that also emit VOCs that create secondary compounds that seed rain, you know, like all of this complexity like you can just limit yourself just to the acceptable science and already the case to respect water and operate from a water paradigm is compelling but if you take it another level to the less recognized more mysterious properties of water then it's just obvious mm. Yeah, I remember you talking a long time about Gerald Pollock's book, uh, uh, where he studied water, um, and he it like next to different hydrophilic uh, surfaces, 
the water would actually change um, to kind of a, he called it the fourth phase of water, liquid crystal shape and had certain electrical properties. And so there may be really interesting electrical things that are happening in with water. And uh, we know that clouds are electrical in nature and um, there's all sorts of electrical parts of it. I feel like that the, the scientists have not quite understood and, you know, and, and you know, mm-hmm. our brains and, and living systems are very electrical in nature itself. And so there may be interesting ways that somehow, I mean, now they're finding that mycelia are kind of electrical, they're sending electrical, and they're trying to actually decipher what language they're speaking. So it'd be very interesting if, because the mycelia release spores into the air that then seed rain, like, and the trees release, uh, as you're saying, like the bacteria and the VVOCs, like, if there's some kind of coordination, some kind of neural network that's happening in the forest, that's somehow coordinating the water and the way, like, it may, there may be some kind of brain that's kind of like, you know, regulating the whole water system. Yeah, I mean, I would say that I would compare like the entire earth to a brain if it weren't for the fact that a brain isn't just, you know, thinking doesn't just happen in the brain. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thinking is a whole body process um, in which the brain occupies an important role. Mm. But anyway, um, yeah, like I think that the... (laughs) It is only dogmatism and ideology that would blind us to the to the likelihood that Earth is not only alive but also conscious. It has all of the complexity necessary for consciousness. It has all of the the the, the feedback loops. It has most of the all, in fact, of the same neurotransmitters that are in a human brain. Uh, that are that that are used by the mycelia, you know, that are used by the by the plants. Um, it has it's just tremendously complex. All these different ways of communication that feed back into each other. Like even the whales, I think, are a key part of the maintenance of Gaian consciousness because they are sending their songs like a blue whale's songs can i think you know circle the entire globe several times they're so loud they're 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 holding the ocean in a web of communication mm. that ultimately feeds back into measurable ecological necessities you know for example and this is just speculation but one function of whales is to transport nutrients from nutrient-rich areas where there's upwelling cold water uh, to nutrient-poor areas where they go to birth, to give birth. So they have their feeding grounds and their birthing grounds. And in their birthing grounds, I mean, they're still peeing and pooping and bringing like all those nutrients uh, to areas that would otherwise perhaps be marine deserts. Mm. And so where do they go exactly? How do they know exactly where to go? Maybe this web of song that they create is part of a communication process that directs nutrients to where they need to be. Maybe the ocean is intelligent. Mm. And we can like dismiss that idea and say, well, it doesn't have a brain that looks like a human brain, therefore it must not be intelligent. But when you understand te- intelligence as a function of complexity and, and nonlinearity and and like, why wouldn't you think it's intelligent? 
Same with plants, same with soil, you know, same with the entire biosphere. And when we really understand that, that, that we are part of a being, of a divine being, then we will treat earth differently. Mm. And until we understand that, all we'll be able to do is be a little bit more clever in averting, at best, at averting the consequences that we can calculate. Right. Well, there are some certain, uh, I know Santa Fe Institute of Complexity and certain things that now looking at the thermodynamics of information and thermodynamics of how life and there's, there, there's theories that there's all this information, I mean, all the time happening in our ecosystems. And and so it is kind of talking to each other. And so that is, I mean, I mean, if you want to come in from the more scientific perspective, like there is a way to kind of begin to see that we are this kind of large kind of informational global brain system that's kind of perhaps coordinating our, our climate mm -hmm. and, our, and, our, and our living systems. And, um, and so, yeah, so... And I think, you know, we're still, we're just beginning to pry open that door, but there is, I mean, just at a, at a simple level, there is already things that, that we don't always look at, but basically there's a big feedback loop between biology and, and the environment and biology and climate through, through the water. So, you know, like the trees will emit more water vapor when they're, when they're hotter. So that then cools down the system as an example. So that's an important feedback loop and, uh, and whether it's doing intelligently would be very interesting to see. Um, and there's all sorts of, you know, other ways that the system, there's all sorts of, yeah, the, we have to look at the feedback loops between biology and the environment and, and out of that begin to understand, which is a very different picture than just seeing the, the environment's there and, you know, and we're just, yeah, we're just adding yep. things to it and then that throws it off. Yeah. Um, I was looking over your book again, and you 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 talked about going to Tamera and seeing uh, how they were like being very surprised because it's all dry around there, and then you said, "Oh, why is there all this uh, lush forest?" And then you look more closely. Do you want to say a little bit about your Tamera experience? Yeah, I mean that was that was you know a good example. Like like it's all green there, you know. And I'm like, you know, what are they doing? Are they pumping water out of the ground to irrigate? No, all they're doing is building water retention features so that the rain doesn't run off, doesn't run off into the ocean, but it has a chance to soak in. And, and so it, when it's rainy, when there's like intense rain, you know, it, it charges up the ponds, which then recharge the aquifers, which create a thriving environment. I mean, it's, it's like the desert stops when you get there. Mm. And I was like, wow, what if everybody in this, in Southern Portugal did this? and Spain, you know, which are rapidly desertifying areas, simply through being in a different relationship to the land. And, and they didn't build the water retention features right away. You know, they, they really were on the land for years asking that question, where does the water want to be? Mm. So it's and observing then, the yeah. rain when it comes down and where it flows to, and that's mm -hmm. where you build the water retention. Yeah, and maybe also like, um through more esoteric ways of communicating with nature mm -hmm. um like you know if you if you other cultures um non-western non-modern cultures had ways and still have ways in some places to communicate with the 
spirits of nature, with rivers, with forests, with, with animal species. And so through this relationship, they can receive information about what to do. Mm. And that information is not really separate from just the information of long experience and long observation, but it adds like a whole new dimension to it. Mm. And and so I think that at Tamara, they um, are doing some of that kind of stuff as well. So it's not just changing the geomorphology and the earthworks and the swales. There's also a, a, another element of listening to the to the life forms and what's going which informs on. the geomorphology. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And but there's also like you know, I don't want to exclude the um, element of ritual as well. Like many cultures believe that that in order to stay in a good relationship, a mutually supportive relationship with the land and with the wind and with the rain and with the sun and with the, the weather, you have to um, make sacrifices. You know, you have to uh, create ceremonies. You have to maintain the relationship. And when they, they you know, some cultures would say that when you cease performing these rituals, then the, the the spirits of the land no longer know you. They no longer know how to take care of you. The reciprocal relationship breaks down. And so you have inhospitable weather. Mm. And, and, you know, who am I to discard such ways of seeing the world? When in fact, when they stop doing the rituals because of colonization, look what happens. Right. And you can yeah. say, oh, that's just because, you know, they've disrupted traditional farming practices and you could have all kinds of rational reasons why. But it's also true that this cultural breakdown, this colonization inevitably accompanies the decay of their ceremonies and rituals. Mm. <clears throat> I was talking to uh, to a guy in New Mexico and he was hired by the government to bring together different groups together around water issues like ranchers and um, environmentalists and indigenous people. And you can imagine the huge fights they had around water in a, in a state where there's not enough water. And, uh, and he would do these facilitation, deep, you know, connection exercise where they begin to see each other, you know, as human beings. And when they came to a conclusion around the water, he said, was surprising thing is often rain would start falling. And, uh, and so there may be some kind of, you know, deeper connection, like what we do with each other and relate our relationships kind of impact the water. And, um, you know, Masuru Omoto, many years ago, he did some water with water and, the, you know, what you're feeling seemed to affect the water crystallization. It wasn't the most scientific, but it was actually later replicated by like the Institute of Nervous Sciences who were a lot more rigorous in their scientific um, and not just looking at it and saying it's pretty, but actually doing statistical analysis. And and it did seem like the emotions of the beings would affect um, yeah. the, the, the water. And, um, and so there is perhaps some deep connection of how we're feeling inside. Our internal state affects the state of the water and it could be through you know some electrical phenomena electromagnetic it could be through some quantum entanglement you know there's lots of things that we still have to figure out with the physics that could be like a there's a deep connection between our state of being and with each other that then affects the state of the water that then 
maybe it shifts the electromagnetic qualities of the water. And maybe that shifts the cloud electromagnetic qualities, which then creates rain or, you know, there's something deep that may be there that we still haven't yeah. fully understood the science of. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it'd be a pretty big stretch, you know, to try to attribute it to something electromagnetic, but, you know, I've certainly come across an awful lot of examples of, of, you know, people in indigenous contexts working with weather, um, calling in rain, holding off the rain, because like there's a Sundance going on. And so like there's this shaman, you know, who's like, like chanting for four days to keep the rain away. And that's, and ordinarily you don't do that because you understand that the rain has a reason to be where it is. So like, you don't want to mess with that too much, but that is th those like specific rain dances or um, ritual technologies to bring in or keep away the rain. Those are like extreme examples of the more general principle of being in good relationship to the earth. And when you're in good relationship to the, to the earth through daily rituals and daily practices of care and respect, then that brings the rain in good measure, in good quantity, and in, and in good rhythm. Like that, like our, an entire way of life is itself a, I wouldn't call it a ritual, but it is um, embedded in a relationship of mutuality. And, and you know, when, when we don't have that, then we're kind of at the mercy of chaotic fluctuations, you know? And it's not to say that traditional and indigenous people always got it right uh, and didn't suffer catastrophes. Like, I don't want to, to fetishize the indigenous or to uphold them as perfect exemplars of humanity. What I've discovered pretty much is that every ill of civilization exists in an embryonic form in traditional people. So this is not about like indigenous good, modern bad, but they have developed um, other modes of technology, other applications of human will and creativity that the modern mind is blind to that are becoming very important in our time. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, every indigenous tribe is different too. You know, maybe there's some that's more in connection with the earth and some, yeah. that, some that are less. And uh, I do remember um, the Australian Aborigines, I used to have books of their paintings, these dot paintings that are so beautiful. I just found out recently from someone who works with the water and land and consults with the Aborigines that these were actually, some of these dot paintings were actually maps of the groundwater. So um, even though they didn't have the, you know, the modern technology to, to go down and examine the groundwater, they actually created maps and they knew where all the groundwater and, and was beneath the earth. Because sometimes they lived in like more desert lands in Australia and they needed that. They needed mm -hmm. to know where the groundwater would come out to drink and stuff. Yeah. And I think, yeah, kind of somehow blending like our, you know, the climate and environmental movement and, and you know, what we're doing with the water. Like there's going to be some combination of the scientists with the indigenous knowledge with the, with the activists and the permaculturists, like that kind of combo. Um, and, and I think I remember hearing you say somewhere, uh, which I kind of like that, like we have to shift the way we do food, right? And the way we work with the water, with the food. 
and 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 we can actually grow a lot more food with permacultural principles uh, like we do with permaculture but that would actually requires a lot more of us to actually become permaculture because it's a lot more people intensive and uh and so that requires us to shift a lot more of our populace into the this farming and I, that, I think I remember hearing that and it really struck me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I made a case for that in my book, I think. Um, my my, my kind of like just intuitive estimate is that we to have a healthy society and a healthy relationship to the soil, we need about 10% of the population in farming. Mm. Right now it's about 1%. So that's like a tenfold expansion in the number of farmers. But that doesn't mean going back to the dark ages, you know, there were the in 1950, 10% of the population of North America was on the farm. So, you know, I'm not asking a lot. So 10% farmers and then another 50% gardeners. And that's all it would take to have food abundance more than now and a regenerative food system. And why is this permacultural regenerative food system require more farmers? Well, because right now our system, like a mechanized industrial system, basically maximizes yield per unit of labor. And, and when you're, <clears throat> so one person, because you're doing, you're basically applying a standard formula to a vast amount of land, you can do it with machines. But if you're going to be in direct relationship with the unique microclimate of every little spot, then it requires attention. Mm. You have to, to, to input your, your being into the, the, the soil and into the plants and into the animals. Mm. Like there's no formula for it. You know, I, this is, what Alan Savory emphasizes a lot, like you cannot take just like a set of abstract principles and say, this is a uh, holistic grazing. And I'm going to uh, rote by, by rote application, do it somewhere else because what works in one place may not quite work in another place. You have to actually be engaged. You have to actually be walking the land. You have to actually be observing uh, the state of the grass and the state of the cattle. And do they need to be moved once a day or twice a day or once a week, you know, and what size should their, should their enclosure be? And like, there's just all of these variables that you cannot uh, codify. So it takes more labor, you know? Um, I mean, it's just, just like sheer efficiency, you know, to, to harvest uh, a field of, of say, um, beads, if you have it all in long rows and everything is standard and identical, then you can use a machine to do it. But if you have them intercropped with, with squash and corn and ground cover, and like you have like this complex system, then you can't just run a machine over it. Like you can't plant with a machine. You can't, I mean, maybe to some extent you can. Like I'm not saying machines have no role whatsoever, 
but you can't do like the whole thing at industrial scale as a standardized process. Mm. Like standardization is, is the antithesis of regenerative agriculture because it's about relationship. You're coming into relationship with a being. Right. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's a deep complexity and the uniqueness of each place with all the feedback loops and the multiple variables. And yeah. yes, and modern yeah. agri- industrial agriculture kind of tries to simplify the variables. And that's why you have monocultures. But that doesn't allow for the complexity of ecosystems and the multiple right. <clears throat> species interacting. Um, and, uh, and and so, yes, yeah, so what we require is a kind of bioregional approach and um and, and, and because we try to simplify the, the variable of water too, in, uh, industrial farming is one of the big problems with the whole water cycle because they aqueduct, we create these huge dams and a lot of our water from those dams actually has to go aqueducted to the farms. And then some of the farms even have this thing called tile drainage underneath. So the, it just monitors exactly the right amount of water. If it goes too much water, then it just funnel it to the rivers and out to the ocean. And so it's very inefficient usage. And so it's not really adhering to the complexity of the water cycle too, which wants to, you know, go up into the leaves and form dew cycles and, you know, mm-hmm. and with the animals doing things to the soil, like there's a whole complexity to the water cycle, which, which these modern industrial farming systems don't really, you know, adhere to. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, yeah. So, so yeah. So it's, I mean, it's a, it is a very mass standardization, right? Damming everything and then aqueducting everything. And so that's a huge problem. Yeah. I mean, at, at, at base, we're really in our time seeing, I mean, we should have seen it a long time ago, but but in more and more ways, realizing the limitations of the industrial model. And not just in agriculture, but in medicine, for example, too. Well, one of the one of my favorite essays that I wrote was called Beyond Industrial Medicine. And, and, but schooling as well, it's an industrial model. Mm. And, you know, there are things that I think, you know, that an industrial model with its standardization and, and scale is useful for, like, I don't think that there's artisanal ways to produce microchips or whatever, but it definitely has exceeded its proper bounds. And there's a lot of of human activity that I think we're ready to reclaim from industrial models mm. and education medicine and agriculture could be three of them. You know, like, I mean, it's not like we're degrading our quality of life by spending more time in a garden. Right. And, the, and we're going to get much better food and, and a much healthier planet by doing that. Mm. And one of the big standardizations too is the whole economic model. Like we've measured everything into yeah. certain dollars, and and I know you've done a lot of work uh, in economics, and you, you wrote a book, Sacred Economics, which yeah. I actually appear in. Um, and uh, right. do you, do you, <laughs> you want to uh, say a little bit about how economics, how you see economics and water tying together, or like what what is the economic system we want to develop to regrow our water system, to heal our water system? Well, you know, the very epitome of a standardized, abstract, generic unit divorced from life and matter is money. So when you 
link money to anything, that thing starts to become like money. The material world starts to become standardized commodities. And, the, you know, that, that's true of the food system too. So I think that ultimately in part, like we need to reclaim at least some of our food ways from the money realm. When I was a kid, my dad had a, excuse me, when I was a kid, my dad had an amazing garden. And like sometimes there would be a surplus of something. So he'd go share it with the neighbors. Some of the neighbors had gardens too. And if they had a surplus, they would share it with us. We weren't selling it to each other. And that was like a little, like maybe 1% of what a food system could be. And I'm not saying that there wouldn't be farmers markets or there wouldn't be, you know, commerce in food, but we could reclaim a lot of, a lot of it from money. And one way to do that is also just to localize, to localize food production. So it's not tied into a global economy because I don't want to get too deeply into the theory of money, um, you know, or leave the impression that money's a, a wholly bad thing that we should, you know, eliminate. Because uh, it is in a way like water, or it could be more like water, and and is is you know serves a function. It circulates in the social body. So I'm not saying like you know I, I, I'm not like on a high rate against money itself, but certainly its nature and its role um, have grown way out of proportion to, to their proper function in our society where everything's become monetized. So, mm. so yeah, like demonetizing food, at least somewhat, you know, and not just in the growing of food, but in the cooking and production of food. Like people, a lot of people don't even cook much anymore, you know, or have forgotten how. So, yeah. yeah, so kind of like an integral form of money, I mean, of, of economics. So there's there's money, but there's also a local economy that's gift and also based in commons and sharing. And, uh, and, and yeah, so centered around food and water. So kind of demonetized, like not making water totally monetized, which is part of the problem with bottled water and all that, like yeah. kind of demonetizing so it can actually work and flow. Because the way I use our money, that's, like causes the water to move around. But if we unhook it from some of that monetary, then the water will then move in different ways and out through our whole system. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on uh, this podcast. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. Do you have any, uh, maybe any closing words or anything? Yeah. Um, just maybe i'll just just in closing you know just speak to the severity right now of the ecological crisis and like things are really spinning out of control right now and it can lead to despair um within the people who actually know what's going on and i want to say that to counter that the power of life to heal 
is also much greater than we normally understand. Mm. So when we start living in a world that is alive, when we start perceiving the world as alive and relating it to it as such, we hold it in a story of life. We say unconsciously, silently, with every choice, we say, you are alive. And that becomes a spell. It becomes an invocation. And it makes the world alive. And when, you know, in contrast, when we operate in a mechanical world, when we think that trees are just, you know, woody tissue and the earth is just like a random chemical accident, that life is a random chemical accident that's essentially dead. Then we're casting a spell of you are dead. Mm. And because our our whole economy, our whole society is built around that, we are creating a world that's dead, becoming more dead every year. So fundamentally, we need to step out of that story mm. and step into the story of Earth is alive and let that story fill us and ooze out of our pores and animate our hands and our words so that we are broadcasting to earth all the time. You are alive. You are alive. And when through thought and word and action, we broadcast that, earth becomes alive. And there is no malady that cannot be healed. Cool. Thank you. That's a great message. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Cool, thank you.